the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, but like a good Ginsu knife commercial, he slices, he dices, and so much more. (laughs) Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is a Wednesday edition of Lifeline. You might have already noted that. And uh, we are here on the sixth day of March just the day before the upcoming 57th Annual Bass Convention. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later on. We, of course, will be broadcasting live both Thursday and Friday evening from um, the host church of Bass Convention, which, of course, is Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. Get a chance to meet a number of the keynote and workshop presenters over the next couple of days of live broadcasting. In fact, um, one of the keynote and uh, workshop presenters, Dr. David Ekman, will join us a little bit later on in the program. We're going to focus in on the topic of the importance of discipleship and how so much what we learn ultimately should impact what we believe and ultimately, therefore, impact our heart. But does it always? Do we really have a handle on what discipleship should be like from a biblical perspective today? We'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on in this first hour. Remember that old great hymn of the faith, Faith of Our Fathers? I think they still play that tune by Bing Crosby during the Christmas season. That's certainly one of my favorite songs or, or great hymns. And yet, as much as we look at the greatness of the faith of our fathers, the reality is in 2019, particularly amongst millennials, faith of our fathers is not necessarily being practiced by that of our sons. In fact, in many respects, it seems to stop there. Now, in part, there's a logical explanation to this meaning God has no stepchildren, so you have to have a direct and intimate relationship with him. Just because you slept one night in the garage doesn't make you a car any more than just because you attend a church regularly does not necessarily make you a Bible-believing Christian or a Christian that has had a life-changing experience with Christ. So what of the changes in the way millennials view the church today and ultimately their relationship with God? Joining me is a noted expert in the world world of religion and culture. He is the director of the Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. We're always pleased to have on the program Dr. Alex McFarland. Dr. McFarland, good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us again. Well, thank you. It's always great to be with you, Craig. I have such a respect for you and the, the way you uh, broadcast and the way you think, and so it's always a privilege to be on, so I thank you. 
This is a very timely topic because there's much conversation these days about how we can impact the world around us, the challenges that oftentimes the church is facing in not losing control or influence on culture and society around us today. And I've often heard it said that it, it's critical that a young person be introduced to the truth of Christ early on so that they can have instilled in them the proper discipleship, the old adage, train up a child in the way he should go, and in doing so would therefore be able to have the kind of foundation upon which to build their own faith, faith as they grow into adulthood. But new research is sort of, I think, sadly enough, enforcing a lot of the fears that many in church leadership have had for a growing number of years now, and that is this notion that when young people reach high school or early college age, they tend to not only drop out of church, but drop out of the faith. And I guess it then becomes true, as I suggested in my opening remarks, uh, the notion of carrying on the faith of their fathers seems to be getting short-circuited. Why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I think there are issues uh, in the culture at large, and then I think there are actually some issues within the Church about our approach to uh, student ministry and youth ministry. Um, I had the privilege of taking a class under Bill Bright, uh, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade. In fact, um, his son Brad, who's a friend, says it was one of the last college classes Bill Bright ever taught. I was at Liberty University at the time. But Bill Bright said that, you know, for years, you know, they, they said if a person has not come to Christ by age 24, um, the odds go up exponentially that they never will. And then Crusade said, based on their research, if a person hasn't come to Christ by age 21, uh, it's, it's unlikely they ever will. At this point, I've read a number of um, statisticians and pollsters, including Josh McDowell, who says if a, if a young person has not made a, a solid decision to follow Christ by age 16, if they've not become a believer by 16, the odds are, are highly against them ever coming to Christ. And, and we know there are people that are in their 30s through their 90s that come to Christ, but by and large, uh, you're right, Craig, kids need to be uh, one to Christ, discipled in the faith, and imparted with a biblical worldview at a young age, because more and more the world is, is giving 10,000 unbiblical and even anti-biblical messages, and the result of, of this darkening of the culture is really beginning to show. And you use a very important word there. You talk about uh, imparting a Christian worldview to them. And, and I, I want to underscore that because so often uh, when you talk even to not just young adults, but even to so-called mature Christians, you get into a bit of deep dialogue and you start to sort of explore where their heart is, where their head is, ultimately where their beliefs are, you will find a couple of surprising things. Either number one, they don't quite know what it is they believe, they just know that they've always believed it, um, or if they believe something, they don't know why they believe it. And to me, it seems to be an utter failure of the ability 
um, to really train up a child in the arena of, of true discipleship. So it's not just good enough to say we forced them to go to Sunday school every weekend. We made sure that we had uh, you know time and prayer in the family, things of this sort. And, and aside from that, we just hope for the best. Individual discipleship of young people really becomes then critically important, doesn't it? I mean, particularly when we look at some of the statistics from the research that you're talking about, as well as things that have been put out by George Barna, that even when we're successful at reaching young people, the church is having a big challenge in keeping them or holding them. Yeah, uh, of millennials, uh, 20-somethings and younger, uh, just for a book I'm writing, I was doing research this morning, um, um, millennials that are nominally churched, uh, they, they might go to church, they might even profess to be a Christian, but um, research as of, you know, the fourth quarter of 2018, um, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not to be taken as literally true. Sixty-three percent of millennials agree with that statement. Um, the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality no longer applies today. Sixty-six percent of millennials agree with that statement. And and on and on I could go, but I think that we, we're seeing the fruits, Craig, of youth ministry that began 30 years ago that was um, really based on having fun. Um, I remember going to conferences, and they would say it's a sin to bore a kid. And and when entertainment um, becomes kind of your focus and you're always trying to top yourself on games and stunts, you know, really just basic reading God's Word and discipleship um, not always, but often, has taken a back seat, and it, it's beginning to show. That's why, that's why we do the camp. You know, we have a summer camp, Truth for a New Generation Apologetics Camp, and we do events all over the nation to try to help kids get grounded. And in my experience, they're hungry for it. And you when know? you say two-thirds drop out of church after high school, that tells me, Dr. McFarland, that they are either disenfranchised, meaning there's a disconnect between what they believe and what the church is teaching, or there is a relational disconnect, meaning that for the longest time they were attending church, they were going through the motions, but there was never a true intimate one-on-one relationship between uh, the individual and Christ. Well, you know, if you win them through fun, um, they're not going to stay when the fun isn't there. But if you win them to the Church and to Christ uh, because of love of Jesus, gratitude for salvation, because it is biblical, it is biblical that a disciple is to be in Church, and if you teach them about the authority of God's Word and how to think Christianly, they will stick. I mean, they just, they will. Christianity still works. But the thing is, I think that we have, um, I'll put it this way, what you win them with is what you've won them to. And if you win them with just fun and games, you know, by the time they're in their early 20s, they can find better fun and games than the Church can provide. But if you've won them through an authentic uh, relationship with the living God, uh, that's something that people really don't easily walk away from. And, and I think your observation, though perhaps painful to hear, is very accurate. Uh, the notion that if you've won them with programs, uh, the minute the program wears out or they get bored with the program, they're off looking for something new. 
On the other hand, if they have genuinely been one and are in a personal relationship with the Lord, then the programs don't matter. Programs come and go. Pastors in the pulpit come and go, but they will stay because there is that intimate personal relationship, that there's a true deep-seated connection there as opposed to something that they just do because it's got great entertainment value to it. We're visiting today with a noted author, religion and culture expert, Dr. Alex McFarland, Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. He's also the co-host of AFR's Exploring the Word talk show and uh, the author of some 20 best-selling books, including one of his latest, Stand Strong in Your Faith. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the question, how do we go about then making sure that God has no stepchildren, that he, in fact, enjoys a personal, intimate relationship with everyone? At the core, of course, is discipleship. We'll explore that next as our conversation with Dr. Alex McFarland continues here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. Get a look at traffic 517. We'll pop over to the KFAX Traffic Center and say, what's up? To Michael Bennett. Hey, Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back at 520. Just a reminder that uh, tomorrow night we won't be here. Well, let me clarify. We won't be here physically in this studio. We'll be live on location at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley, where they host the 57th Annual Bass Convention that will be taking place uh, tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday. And we invite you to get more information about this annual conference at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. Dr. David Ekman, one of the uh, presenters, will be joining us a little bit later on in tonight's program to uh, to dive into a very critical, important, um, and that is understanding that how you see is how you live, which uh, I think sort of dovetails nicely into our conversation tonight about the issue of what's happening with uh, the millennial generation in relationship to the church. We're talking, of course, with Dr. Alex McFarland about it. He is a religion and culture expert and serves as director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. You made a very interesting observation, and I think it's one that all of us need to kind of um, pause and really contemplate, and that is this notion that what you win them with is what you've won them to, and if the thing that you've won them with disappears or no longer can quote-unquote compete, then obviously you're going to have a difficult time keeping young people in the church today. And and I suppose, uh, you know, a big sense of this, as we're hearing from young people, is either being disenfranchised somehow from the organized church or, um, or, or maybe simply looking at the church and saying it, it just no longer seems relevant in my life, and therefore it presents a huge, not only challenge, certainly, but a huge opportunity, too, for the Church, does it not? Well, it really does. It really does. And, you know, like a business has to find its unique selling proposition. You know, with with the, the local Church, I mean, what we've got is the truth of God's Word. We've got God's eternal Word, which does speak to today's issues. And so many young people, they, they want to know what does the Bible have to say about morality, human sexuality, relationships, success in life, 
Uh, the number one question that we get from young people, and you know, by God's grace, we're in front of you know tens of thousands of young people a year, and we've done surveys of over 100,000 teens and college students over the last 25 years. The number one question is, does God have a plan for my life? And, you know, how do I know God's plan for my life? Um, Craig, I was just in a, in a meeting tonight about, um, you know, really adoption of at-risk teens that are homeless. And one of the key things that they said that young people need is mentoring. Hmm. And um, <laughs> while I believe the truth of God's Word, it, that is our message, you know, the gospel of Jesus and the truth of God's Word, a biblically informed worldview. But one of the key things, and any church can do this, regardless of your budget, urban, rural, whatever, but is mentoring. And sticky churches are relational churches. And by sticky, I mean where people stay and remain and come back. And one of the things we can do is to help mentor a generation and be their friend. Um, Show them how to do life. Show them how to pray with power. Show them how to change the oil in a car, you know? Show, show them how to make a budget. I mean, um, kids, I know they're, they're techie and they're all, you know, walking around staring at a mobile device, but they're still human beings. And, and I think part of the reason why they're, they're stuck with the mobile device is because they don't know how to do relationships because perhaps so often the relationships that they've seen modeled around them have been failures, meaning they've come from a divorced family or multiple generations of divorces, and they really don't know how to do relationships. And it's interesting. I wish we had a camera here because right as you said the word mentoring, I had just finished writing down the words mentoring and modeling. And what I find interesting about this is you talk about the sticky churches being ones that are relational churches. At the end of the day, isn't that the bottom line here? I mean, when we look at the reasons why God sacrificed his only begotten son that would provide the bridge, the means by which we might receive uh, forgiveness through his grace, and then to not only be reconciled, but be reconciled for the purpose of what? Because God wants to walk in relationship with us. And so it's all about relationships. Unfortunately, sometimes, though, I think the church has gotten caught up on, on the marketing end of all of this, as you said earlier, and, and failed to remember at the end of the day, it's really about relationships it's about and, and and of course those come through mentoring and maybe the, the the more accurate word to use here certainly from a biblical standpoint is what you're really saying is the importance of discipleship. Yeah, and and making friends and and doing life together, and you know in the context of friendships and relationships where you know the the, the older brother and the big sister you know imparts life skills and just wisdom. There's the opportunity to share the gospel. But, I mean, I I meet kids who come to me, and they they ask, you know, tell me how to do a job interview where I'll get offered the position. Can you, could we do, uh, you know, like a a run-through of a job interview? And I've done that with many young people. They ask, you know, how do you write a book proposal? How How did you get published? How did you do what you do? And, you know, here's the thing, not only does God love all people and wants all to have a relationship with Christ and become a disciple, but then there are those that are also called into the ministry. And, you know, they need to be mentored. And so I, I think what we have here is an opportunity for churches, and you may not have the, the multi-multi-million-dollar campus or anything like that. I've never 
I've never had a young person say, I fell away from church because the building wasn't nice enough. <laughs> I've, I've never had a young person say anything like that. But at college, when, when I've interviewed kids, and I, I said, you know, you were raised in church, but now you no longer go. And I've had a number of college 20-somethings say, um, well, I stopped going and nobody cares. You know, they don't know if I'm there or not there, you know. So I think I think a lot of 20-somethings do feel kind of invisible. And we need to n- let them know that they're not. They're, uh, number one is salvation, but then as a believer, to be a disciple, and every disciple part of a a local body of Christ. And so we can do this, church. I mean, we can do it. might not always be convenient, might not be the way we've always done it, but build your ministry on relationships and let people know that they are valued. One of the things that we're hearing increasing comments on from millennials is this notion that um, faith is something that ought to be more private than public. Uh, you know, keep your thoughts uh, regarding your faith to yourself. Don't share those things. And I, and I wonder if at the end of the day that really is self-defeating in the sense that if we don't share our faith with others, if our faith is not something that in a sense we wear on our sleeve, how can we ever hope to reach others? How can we ever hope to disciple others if we're train, trying to treat our faith as some sort of a private thing that we kind of hide back in the closet and don't let anybody know about? Well, I'm, I'm so glad you bring that up, because for one thing, you know, the Great Commission and the call to go into all the world and make disciples, it's not a suggestion. It's not a, it's not a good suggestion. It is a Great Commission. And um, also, we've got to remember that everybody around us is going to spend eternity in one of two places. And so um, I will say, you know, 30 and younger come from a generation where the majority do not live under the same roof as mom and dad, and they can be a little bit passive-aggressive, and they don't like to have to broach uncomfortable subjects and to tell your best friend, hey, by the way, you know, God loves you, but your sin is a problem, um, they, they feel uncomfortable. And so, or, or they can feel uncomfortable. And also, let me just say that a lot of preachers don't preach about Heaven, hell, eternity. I mean, a, a lot of, if you look in most Christian bookstores, I mean, there are books about time management, there are books about relationships, and all these things are fine. But remember, we're here, as, as Chuck Swindoll said, we're not home yet, but we're on a journey across raw pagan soil. We're, we're God's emissaries in hostile territory. And part of our job is to proclaim that gospel so people can come under Holy Spirit conviction, open their heart, and be saved. And you know what's curious about that and, and the disconnect that relates to it is that with so much emphasis in recent years on uh, mega church and the emergent church and things of this sort, we focus so much on programs that we fail to focus on relational ministry. And the, you know, the irony is if you talk to a lot of millennials today, you see that they want significance in life. They're looking for something upon which, you know, they can they can sort of, you know, anchor their life on. They're looking also to leave the world a better place. I think they look at uh, what has happened with the influence of their parents or grandparents and say, you know, you guys have done nothing but get us into wars, get us into economic trouble, get us into political strife. Uh, we'd like to leave the world a better place than we found it. So they do want to have significance. And, uh, you know, if we did a better job as believers um, in showing young people how they can find 
um, significance in their relationship with God and can be contributory to having a world impact. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that we don't, uh, you know, t- teach the basics of heaven and hell. Absolutely. But I think sometimes when we fail to teach those basics, we drift away from providing a lot of the, the, the kind of foundation that young people are looking for. I mean, we, we oftentimes conclude they don't believe in any truth whatsoever. And maybe, maybe that's because the older generation has done a lousy job at modeling truth in front of them. Dr. McFarland, I appreciate your time. We're out of it for this afternoon. We're going to have to get you back on real soon to dive into this topic a little bit deeper because there's many layers to this onion, and I think there's much the church can learn from not only the attitudes of millennials about organized religion and the state of the church today, but most importantly, um, how we can do a better job at addressing many of the shortcomings and focusing on relational Christianity so that once a young person reaches the age when they can make their own decisions, that they decide to stay with the faith and stay in the church as opposed to walk away from it. Dr. Alex McFarland, Director of Religion and Culture at the Christian Worldview and Apologetics Center of North Greenville University. More information, by the way, on the web at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. We take a brief time out, 532. Let's get caught up on some traffic here. Michael Bennett's got the latest for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 536 here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the sixth day of March. You know, it's interesting when we think about the notion of rose-colored glasses or, or, or how we see things impacts not only how we think, but ultimately how we interact and react Part of it's a portion of our upbringing. A lot of it has to do with the kind of culture that we were raised in, both within the family and within our, our the larger community. That could be culture that uh, relates to the part of the United States you live in to even the part of the world that you come from. Our perspectives and thinking, then, are ultimately fed by our beliefs and our teaching. And I think as you begin to get a handle on that, it helps us to better understand why discipleship then is so critically important. Because as we engage in proper discipleship, as we were referencing to earlier with Dr. McFarland, um, that's going to change not only how we think about things and the way we see the world, but ultimately change our hearts. Joining me now in studio is Dr. David Ekman. Dr. Ekman pastored for some 16 years, also served for many years as dean and then vice president for Western Seminary in San Jose and up in the city of Roses, Portland, Oregon. He has studied at Oxford University in England, working on his doctrine, and received his Ph.D. in Old Testament and Hebrew from Golden Gate Seminary. He's the author of a number of best-selling books, including Becoming Who God Intended and Knowing the Heart of the Father. He currently serves as president of Becoming What God 
God-intended ministries. And Dr. Eckman, good to have you with us today. Well, it's good to be here. Let's talk a bit about this notion of heart change and mind change. You know, we, we come into life, we are raised by principles that are inherent within our family. We see what our parents did and how they reacted to circumstances, and we kind of pattern our lives after them or the way we react or, or relate to the world after them. There's cultural influences. And at the end of the day, we sort of build up this lens through which we see everything. But when we become Christians, that sense of the way we see the world and the way we interact with the world should change drastically. Um, There are occasions, though, when we see it changes far less than it really should. Where is the shortcoming there, do you think? If we went back 2,000 years ago, and we watched a conversion of a Gentile pagan, a non-Christian, from paganism to Christianity, it would have been a totally visual experience, meaning that individual lived in a city filled with idols. He went home to a place where he had a God's shelf, a bunch of idols there, and he worshipped household demons. That was actually the term they used, Damion, demons. So that when he was converted out of that world, he recognized that everything he had seen previously was a massive contradiction to this belief in one God and Jesus Christ. And it was totally blatant. Now we live in a world where it's not as blatant, but yet the same difficulty applies, where we have eyesight that's been created by birth, and we have the eyes of Adam, so to speak. We have cultural eyes. We have family background eyes. And the process of discipleship, the process of conversion, is actually changing our eyesights, removing cataracts so that we can see things clearly. It's a very interesting thing that in Ephesians, Paul says we have to take things off and put things on. What we take off is what we bring into Christianity, the eyes we were born Mm -hmm. with, so to speak. Paul calls them the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our culture, the eyes of our family background, particularly if it's performance-based, which would be Asian, or if it's um, dysfunctional. How we see things determines how we live. I can think, I can process things, but that doesn't affect how I react. But if you threw a ball at me, I'd grab it because I see it with my eyes. The great force in our life is how we look at reality. And when we meet Christ, the process of conversion is really helping us to put off the old eyesight, put on the new, so that, the, in a sense, the strategic change should be right at the point of conversion or the new birth. Because at that point, they know they've entered a new world. But it becomes a question of how to navigate that world and how to leave the old one behind. That's the intro paragraph. So when we talk about things like uh, old things have passed away, away, behold, everything becomes new. When we talk about dying to the flesh daily, as Paul did. When we talk about, um, in in a sense here, um, renewing our mind in Christ. We're really right. talking about then the process of um, maybe in other terms, we might say, um, leaving behind a lot of the baggage <laughs> yeah. that we've brought yeah. with us. Maybe that's baggage that's related to um, 
past experiences sure. in maybe even a religious setting, other churches, denominations, whatever it might be, belief systems, um, baggage related to the way we see relationships, maybe mm-hmm. from a dysfunctional standpoint, if we came from yep. a broken home, um, all of these areas that ultimately have sort of written onto our hearts a way of seeing and therefore interacting and relating to not just the world around us and others, but ultimately God, um, that essentially need to be completely revisited to slowly then dispense with that old way of seeing things and begin to embrace and adopt the new. Absolutely, absolutely. And in one sense, it's a simple process, and in another sense, it's incredibly profound. It's simple because it starts out with the premise, everything you've been looking at is looked at incorrectly. Now, as a Christian, there's a Father in heaven, a new family in heaven. There's an identity with Christ where God the Father sees us joined to Christ There's the influence of the Holy Spirit, and it's like being adopted into a new family, meaning the thrill of Christianity is that three set of relationships, knowing God is a good father, realizing I've been joined to Christ, I'm no longer with Adam, realizing I've got a teacher within who prompts me, gives wisdom, and as I learn to live out of this new family, I learn how to effectively deal with life because I'm coming from a safe, secure, well-loved place. You use, I think, and intentionally so, a very key word there that I want to explore for the moment. You've kind of along the continuum talked about this either being simple or profound, but nevertheless a process. Right. I think sometimes people are on the impression that, well, if I dedicate my life to Christ, um, old things pass away. Behold, everything becomes new, that we think that that's sort of an instantaneous event, and therefore um, all of our thinking, all of our relating, all of our viewpoints, and our heart should change instantly. But you use the word deliberately process. Take us a little deeper. Again, when a person is converted, they're wide open to a new process. I became a Christian out of a non-Christian background. Everything I saw, the church, totally knew, and anything they told me I was open to because I recognized something huge had happened, but I didn't understand it. If I had been put into a process that showed me the problems I'm coming in with, how I saw things coming in with, and also how to see things through the eye of Christ, the eyes of Christ, new Father in heaven, a new influence within, a new way of seeing everyone in the world as somebody Christ died for. And that's a process. That takes time. But the revolutionary thing has happened, conversion. But will that revolutionary thing be built upon so that the person leaves the old behind, enters into the new? So that revolutionary moment changes our status in heaven. Right. It begins a new relationship with very God himself. Right. But the process of going from old man to new man, old thinking to new thinking, old perspective to new perspective, that's going to take some time. There's things we'll have to learn and some things we'll have to unlearn. Well, it goes with the metaphor, that wonderful metaphor of Paul that we have to put off the old man and put on the new. It's fascinating. He starts out with the negative. He doesn't start out with the positive. 
He says, there are things that you're wearing that you're walking into the Christian life with, and you've got to recognize you've got an old, smelly suit of clothes on, and don't put the new on over that. You'll look very odd with two sets of clothes. You've got to deal with what you've carried into Christianity, which then means this relational thing that you mentioned in talking with Dr. McFarland, where the church has to interact not only in a relational way, but in a process way where they can walk people through a serious path of life change. And the heart of the matter is, are we addressing how they really see things? There is a deliberate intentionality about this. Absolutely. Isn't there? This Absolutely. is not just by happenstance. Nope. This, this is really an intentional experience and has to be, from that perspective then, intentionally uh, built upon or embarked upon. Correct. Without it being an intentional process, we won't, I'll use a medical term, we won't, we won't address the pathology a person brings in. Mm-hmm. And again, the strategic point is the point of conversion, where they're hoping that profound changes will come into their life. But they have to learn how to cooperate with the new family members. And, and that hope... Um, is is earmarked by now the possibility of that happening. Right. The probability of that happening, that really then pivots on that sense of intentionality from our perspective, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the work of Christ on the cross is also very intentional um, and is entirely on God's side of the equation. Right. And the process, the intentional process of life change and putting off with the old and embracing the new and changing the way we see and therefore relate and interact with the world around us, that's the effort that we have to put into this. That is correct, which then means that the leadership of the church has to ask a basic question. Is the church built around a programmatic approach that was Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier Or is it based around a familial approach? A familial approach in the sense of, I've got a new dad in heaven. I've got a new, total way of looking at myself. And I've got a friend within. And I have to learn to hear his words, to learn his language, to feel his prompting. New family and the church reality then has to reflect and continually be pointing me into the place of real growth, which is in this set of Trinitarian relationships. And from a relational standpoint, let's talk about that for a moment, because for a lot of people, we talk about the familiar approach. From a relational approach, oftentimes people are coming into the new relationship with God. Let's use a woman, for example, who has come from a broken home. Dad might have been abusive toward mom if he was in the home at all. The woman then is raised with a sense, with a modeling, that male figures can't be trusted, that a father is not protective, right? Uh, but abusive. Now, this same woman comes to faith in Christ, begins this process of, of rejuvenation of the way she sees things. Well, one of the first pieces of baggage or barrier that she has to overcome is she's had a very Adamic um, distorted viewpoint as to what the father figure, I'm using my air quotes here for the listeners, what the father figure 
looks like because the one that she's the only one that she's seen previously or heretofore didn't model fatherhood from a godly perspective. And so now there's this barrier here. The woman goes to church and hears songs about trusting in our Heavenly Father and says, I don't know how to trust a father. So we have to learn that all over, don't we? Or for the first time. Actually, you have asked a marvelously sophisticated question. And I would say there's two things that will help this woman. First of all, healthy modeling within the church because a woman coming out of that kind of background is similar to the kind of background I came from. And when I found that there was an affection among believers that was healthy and safe, it was close to intoxicating, meaning I saw something modeled. But then over time, through the pictures within the Bible, I discovered that the pictures within my head were false. It's fascinating to me that most of Christ's discipleship was based on storytelling. Mm -hmm. And often, Sermon on the Mount, six to eight different times, he gave pictures of God as a good father to an audience that culturally the father was distant, the father was a disciplinarian, the father worked like a dog, and the father was not interested in the son. So that this picture, these parables, became the meeting point between the Gobi Desert that's in the woman's mm -hmm. heart and the truth that's in the Bible. And it's strangely, the Bible's written on pages with words, but it's filled with pictures to fill the heart. And I think that also allows for a level of connectivity there, because while we might not, in, in the example we've used of, of the woman uh, who comes from a broken home and a dysfunctional family, a dysfunctional father, while she might not know what a protective, loving father looks like, that doesn't mean she doesn't have a yearning in her heart to experience Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So then the relationship with Christ and beginning to be in discipleship, where she can see it modeled, where she can begin to discover the true character and heart of God and see what a loving father looks like, wow, that's, that's life-changing stuff. That's eye and, and, and viewpoint-changing stuff. It is massive. When we do work in China, and you had referred to Chinese discipleship, a friendly, other-centered centered person is like the sun and the moon in that kind of culture. Mm. Somebody who actually has a, a disinterested interest mm -hmm. in another person is highly attractive because it's so totally unusual. And to actually bring that into a mix of a person's life, that's dynamite. It blows open the caverns of the heart so that truth can come in. We're going to pause for a moment, come back to more of our conversation. If you're riveted by this discussion, uh, let me encourage you to be sure to attend the 57th annual Bass Convention. Dr. Eckman's going to be presenting a number of workshops there, both Friday and Saturday, and you can get complete details at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. With us tonight in studio, the president of Becoming What God Intended Ministries, Dr. David Eckman. More information, by the way, about his ministry directly at whatgodintended.org. That's whatgodintended.org. We'll take a brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. 
All right, 5.53, we're a bit late. Hey, you're stuck in traffic. You're late, too. We're all, <laughs> we're all in the same boat. Let's see what's going on out there. Michael Bennett, give us the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, well, back to the conversation. Dr. David Ekman with me today in studio. He, of course, is the president of Becoming What God Intended Ministries. He'll be presenting a number of workshops on this topic that we're addressing today, um, how you see is how you live, over the course of the Bass Convention, um, speaking both Friday and Saturday. And you can get complete details on the web at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention. Dot O-R-G. I want to circle back around, Dr. Eggman, to this notion of um, our eyesight and how our life experiences tend to colorize ultimately not only the way we see life, the way we see others, the way we see relationships. We kind of touched on this very notion in the way our past relational experiences can also colorize or impact the way we relate to God. Do we see God as somebody mm-hmm. out there ready to hit us with a stick the minute we step out of line? Is it a loving, gracious, tender Heavenly Father there to embrace us and hug us like a mother who does so when we've fallen and scraped our knee as a kid? And and a lot of this comes back to once we come to Christ, the sort of discipleship that we are exposed to and whether or not the process has begun or is short-circuited in taking off our our worldly lenses and putting on our biblical lenses. And as you mentioned, that doesn't happen by accident. That's that's very intentional. And if it's done right, it can be very powerful, can't it, in terms of transforming an individual's life, both emotionally, spiritually, and relationally? It's incredible to watch what an effective pattern of discipleship can do. Quite frankly, it's better than counseling. <laughs> in, in the sense that you're introducing people to the source of life, the advantage often that counseling ha- has is that it's, it's addressing concrete problems and issues. Healthy discipleship addresses concrete problems and issues, but the concrete problems and issues are how do you look at everything? How do you look at yourself? Basic counseling issues, but things that are addressed that are the product of our birth from Adam, our culture, and our family background, all of those things come with challenges. And then the first part of discipleship is to say, what what are the items of clothing you're wearing? What do you need to take off? And often it's, how do I perceive God? How do I perceive myself? How do I perceive this world? How do I perceive another person? All of those already have been ingrained into the person by birth, by culture, by family. And the first step of discipleship, quite frankly, is to make them aware of what they're bringing in so then it can be taken off. Without that process of addressing what they're bringing in, putting another suit of clothing on top of that which is closest to their heart 
may be a false strategy. And let's talk about that for a moment. We, we sort of touched on this off the air during the break, um, the notion of the, the, the way in which our life experiences and our culture can right. impact not only how we see each other, but ultimately how we relate to God. Let's give an example. Somebody who was raised in a false religion mm-hmm. that perhaps grew up in uh, Mormonism still nevertheless has a fundamental belief in the existence of God, may be confused or have false ideas about who Jesus Christ is, the Godhead, who we are in relationship to the Trinity, etc., but nevertheless still fundamentally believes in God versus the individual who was raised in an atheistic background, doesn't believe that God ever existed. Mm -hmm. Suddenly now the principles that we need to teach two new believers become very different. One is changing the understanding of how they perceive God based on what had been false teaching and bringing them into correct teaching, juxtaposed against the individual who has no concept of God whatsoever because heretofore didn't believe he existed, thought that God was an invention of mankind. So what we're going to do then in that, in that discipleship, in that, in that process, is going to look a little different, won't it? It will look very different. And in in a sense, you always have to start out with how did they originally see, which led to how they thought, then what they emotionally experienced, then what they wanted in life, and what they've done. You start out with what was their basic view of reality. There is no God. You present the reality of Christ, the God-man who came to give us a picture of what God is like. Suddenly, every category they have has to be changed. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of it is that if they know where they started from, you can help them on the journey to where they need to go. An example would be you've been to China, I've been to China. One of the fascinating things about Chinese traditional culture, and is still true in communist China today, is that everything is performance-based driven. So their eyesight says... Everything is a barter. I do this, you give me that. You bring them into Christianity that says, you give God nothing. He gives you everything, but the challenge is, will you believe it? What God gives you is like sunshine. You can't pay back sunshine, but you can sure be grateful for it. And the starting premise, knowing what the starting premise is, basically how reality is seen, is critically important. You cannot disciple somebody from Asia the way you disciple somebody from the United States. And you look at that and see not only the broader application in terms of discipleship once they've made a commitment to Christ, but even in terms of evangelism and the kind of approach that we take. You know, it's interesting sometimes in the culture today, the church sort of has a challenge because for many generations, there was always the premise that we began with the fact that there was a fundamental belief in the existence of God. Right. Maybe you didn't put a name to him. Maybe you just knew that it was a higher power, a greater deity, a uh, intelligent design behind uh, how mankind came to be, but you believe fundamentally in the existence of God. Now we have a culture today where fewer and fewer people come from that perspective. So you start not with that God said, but you start with that God. Did he? Does he even exist? 
in terms of being able to then share or witness with another individual? The challenges indeed are different. China, the point of conversion in China is I have absolutely no meaning in life because there's nothing in this Gobi Desert that gives me any meaning. One big void. Yeah. Give me some meaning, and if God's attached, even so much better. In the United States, the level of confusion is incredible religiously and politically so that to ground a person in something that doesn't add to the confusion is a very, very good starting point because the clash of confusion is what would produce a confused teenager Mm -hmm. who just goes with the cultural winds. But you start out with an historical figure, a representative of God on earth, somebody who can tell us who we are, someone that can tell us who God is, that's a tremendous defining starting point. This is shifting, too, isn't it? And I don't want to get too far afield off topic, but I find this fascinating based on your experiences working in China, that this is beginning to make a big uh, paradigm shift, too. While the fundamentals of historical Chinese culture remain the same, 20, 30 years ago, you didn't have standing in the way of evangelism or sharing your faith, things like um, materialism and capitalism and all of that. Many of the trappings that we use to sort of anesthetize our pain here or to find significance in life and meaning in life, I've got the bigger car, the bigger bank account, (coughs) therefore I I glean some sense of satisfaction out of all of that, though it may be uh, trite and temporary. But it's there nevertheless for the longest time in a good majority of the history of China post-cultural revolution, uh, none of that existed. Mm-hmm. Unless you were within the political and, and, and leading things from Beijing, there was no such thing as being able to attempt to fill the void with, with, with goodies, with material things. That's changed today. So I would imagine that there's a different complexity now when it comes to reaching a Chinese person for Christ just because of uh, the opportunities for wealth and for materialism that have opened up in the last 20, 30 years? I would say, um, based on a lot of conversations with Chinese and other Asians, the basic picture is how do you have a healthy human relationships relationship? It's a different issue than wealth. I don't know how to be a father. I don't know how to be human. I don't know how to be a wife. I don't know what it means to be a person of character. The the basic issue in China is mental health and relational health, family health. That's the carryover from the traditional family background. And so much of that perhaps is directly attributable to this vacuum of godless communism that they have been steeped in for 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving as far as evangelism is concerned, meaning when everything's stripped away and you're just told you're an animal that's going to die, how on earth do you begin to have human relationships? But when somebody steps in and exhibits, models healthy human relationships— and then says, you're of value, and incidentally, that person's of value, and incidentally, God thinks you're of such a value that you're worth dying for. Man alive, what a premise. 
What a very exciting premise. Yeah, it's like we see, for example, in the, the, the paradigm of India, where within Hinduism there is 300 million gods. I mean, the, the, the yeah. number is unfathomable, right? Um, and, and so much of what they do is all designed to not make the gods angry, to appease the gods. Yeah. Um, I remember one time in India complimenting a father that we just met on the street in the midst of travels. Um, I forget, his, his son had learned to do a, um, a yo-yo trick. And this young boy was showing the yo-yo, yo-yo trick. And I just made a remark about how clever and talented he was. And found out through the interpreter, the father was not at all pleased with that remark because of fear that that would make the gods jealous or angry, that you should not compliment the child, <laughs> least the god that he worshipped get upset that the child was getting praise as opposed to the deity that he worshipped. When you then bring to an Indian person the news of not a god that's a fearful god, not a god that's a, 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 a jealous god in the sense that I just described, but a loving, tender, passionate god who wants to have a personal relationship with you. The very notion of a personal relationship with God is so foreign to them that the minute they hear about it, they're immediately drawn in to hear more. Just to tag in onto that. Imagine if instead of the cultural, the American culture, where homosexuality is now accepted, all kinds of stuff is accepted, what if the message is, you may think that the God of the Bible condemns you, but the reality is the son of the God of the Bible died in your stead, Mm. because it's not the issue of what you've done or who you think you are. It's how valuable you are to a God who wants to have a relationship with you. Instead of starting out with, there's something aberrant about your existence. It's, no, there's nothing aberrant about your existence. You exist to get to know a good God who thinks you're worth dying for. And that really brings us back full circle to the workshops you'll be presenting at the Bass Convention on Friday and Saturday. Um, this perspective of relational Christianity, understanding that God ultimately put the plan in place for the sacrifice of his son because he wants relationship with his creation, and that once that relationship is established through the transforming of our hearts and our minds by surrendering to Christ— Now that process of putting off the old and putting on the new, as we've been discussing, really is accomplished in a relational fashion, isn't it? Rethinking the way we not only relate to um, relationships on certainly the the horizontal plane, but ultimately the vertical plane. Illustrating it, I could say you need to pray. But what if I said to you, there is a Father in heaven who's far more eager to talk to you than you are to talk to him. Mm -hmm. He wants to know your heart. He wants to help your life. He wants to make you feel worthwhile. He wants to produce a person of character within you, like his son, Jesus Christ. That changes it. Suddenly, wait a minute, wait a minute. Prayer makes sense now. If he wants to talk to me, maybe I'll talk to him. It also changes the emphasis in a fashion that becomes far more appealing. How many have have said, 
uh, gee, I went on a date with this girl, or I met this gentleman, we were hooked up by some friends, and over the course of dinner, all he did was talk about himself, or all she did was talk about her, and you feel like you're being left out of the conversation. Turn around and say, well, gee, they were asking questions about my background, and where I was born, and my family, and what I did for a living, and gee, they seem to be so engaged, I'd like to go out for a second date. The notion here is that God is so interested in you that he sent his son to die for you because he wants to walk in relationship with you, and that God has a very deep-seated interest in not um, just picking you up and leaving you the way you are, but picking you up out of the mess that you're in and changing you and changing your life for the better. Now, anybody hears that, they're going to say, wow, tell me more. And through the process of relationships. Not through the process of handing you a rule book, but if you got to really know who this father is, if you really understood how noble Christ is, and if you realize there was a Holy Spirit who specializes in liberation, well, let's give this a chance. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this, Dr. Ekman, regarding your workshops that you'll be conducting over the course of Friday and Saturday at the Bass Convention. Um, A lot of this, of course, comes back core to believers being equipped in understanding what discipleship is and how to disciple another believer. Walk us through briefly, if you would, some of the key points that you're going to be discussing over the course of the two days. Uh, One key point is a thing called the belief cycle, which starts out with how we see reality. It actually can be used for counseling, pastoral care, or apologetics. What's the beginning picture that I have of of reality? How does that impact me, and how can we help people change it? Uh, second one is how we see is how we live. Again, emphasizing the fact that the starting point of life is how I perceive reality. When I learned vocabulary, it was always connected to a picture. So every word I use is picture language, and that can be very dangerous or very helpful. Mm -hmm. And the Bible's based on picture language. How we see is how we live. Participating in the life of God, meaning conversion is the process of getting to know the members of the Trinity, and the Bible is a tool book to introduce us to three different persons who functionally treat us differently. One's a dad, one's a savior, one's an empowerer, and I've got to learn how to participate in this new family like a new adopted kid who knows absolutely nothing, and in the process of discovering these three persons— I also need to discover who I am in relationship to those persons. How am I seen? And then we'll deal with why people argue, which sounds strange, but the reason why people argue is they don't have a place of peace, self-acceptance, and worth that makes them feel safe enough to have a discussion and to solve a problem instead of trying to control each other. Then we'll deal with the specialized area of discipling the Chinese Christian. What are the special areas that need to be addressed? And that would be very helpful for Caucasians because often we can learn more about our culture by taking a peek at another culture and going, oh, maybe there are things I need to question Mm -hmm. about the culture that I'm in. The lack of community in American culture is frightening. 
while we're the wonder of the world that we can be such a dislocated people. Yeah, we don't know our neighbors, and we lived across the street from them for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, and in many parts of the world, that's a cultural impossibility. So the differences in culture and how to address those differences through Christian discipleship. Be a plenty of uh, meat on the bone over the course of the next uh, couple of days. Again, Dr. David Ekman uh, conducting a number of workshops at the Bass Convention. The convention, of course, starts tomorrow night with a general session. (coughs) Pardon me. We'll be on hand live at 5 p.m. tomorrow night, broadcasting live both Thursday and Friday. And, of course, the convention taking place over the course of three days, general session tomorrow night. That'll be at 7 o'clock, our broadcast at 5 p.m., and then workshops and seminars and general sessions taking place throughout the course of both Friday, the 7th, and the 8th as well. Details available on the web at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. And I'd like to thank Dr. David Ekman, the president of Becoming What God Intended Ministries, for dropping by for a chat. Good to meet you. Oh, this is fun. Information, by the way, about Dr. Ekman's ministry online at WhatGodIntended.org. It's 617. Let's get a look at traffic for you. Let's get the latest with Michael Bennett, the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.